This podcast was first broadcast on 92.6 FM Radio Verulam. Go to radioverulam.com to find more Environment Matters podcasts and, if you enjoy what we do, to find out how you can support the station, which is run entirely by volunteers. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Environment Matters with me, Amanda Yorworth. Environment Matters is the show that brings you news on issues of sustainability in the environment from around St Albans and from further afield. Now, I didn't have to go further afield to find today's guest. Joe Gray is a local ecologist who wrote his first book, 13 Paces by Four, in lockdown, taking inspiration from his own small St Albans garden. And you can find me discussing Joe's book with him on the podcast page of RadioVolum.com. Ever resourceful, Joe now turned his hand to fiction with his new book, The Gardens of Greenspring Road, under the pen name Dewey Dabber. In the book, we join 15-year-old Mina as she discovers a connection with the natural world and comes to terms with the ways in which humans harm the lives of other creatures. But she doesn't see herself as helpless and starts on a daring project of her own to fight back. As you'd expect from a deep green environmentalist, there's certainly plenty of eco-tips and comment in the book, but there's also love interest and even a dash of humour. I spoke to Dewey's alter ego, local author Joe Gray, to discuss the concept of eco-fiction and to find out more about his inspiration for the book. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. So there's plenty to enjoy in the gardens of Greenspring Road. Um, there's some endearing characters, there's a great storyline and lots of details that I found interesting. But when you set out to write this book, was your plan just to entertain or did you also want to perhaps educate or, or perhaps persuade us? I think, yes, it's probably the other way around. So first and foremost, I see eco-fiction as an alternative medium to, you know, traditional journalistic reporting on ecological issues that may, yes, as you say, help persuade people to maybe see the world slightly differently or radically differently. So that was the overarching goal. Regarding the entertainment side of it, yes, yeah, so, so I tried to add in sort of more than a sprinkle of humour, let's say, to the to the story and to the characters and to the events. And that is because I think some of the issues that are being dealt with in the book are, are quite heavy and quite um, distressing if you care for the more than human world, as most people do. I believe that the magic the magic source for eco-fiction is, is sort of plenty of humour to avoid it getting just sort of too heavy that it sinks. Yeah, so I mean, I certainly didn't feel... I certainly didn't feel that it was a depressing book in any way whatsoever at all. There's a, there's a, a happy ending. Um, I think not too many spoilers there. And the humour very much came through. There's a very light touch with it. So eco-fiction, it's been described as an agent for social change. And it does sound like that was one of your intentions here. Absolutely. David Lodge, who has written a number of novels and also written academically on the art of fiction, has sort of highlighted the the rhetorical potential of fiction as being particularly important. And by that, I mean the, the, the potential to sort of persuade people to see the world in a way that you're describing as the author, to bring them into that world, and hopefully in so doing, to maybe, maybe yes, ch- change things a little bit. I think it's increasingly powerful medium fiction in general i think people are now feeling sort of more and more like they're being drowned by facts being drowned by bad news and also perhaps skeptical about is what we've been told by journalists the whole truth is what we've been told by politicians the whole truth 
ecofiction gets around that. You don't need to worry about that. It's just a way of looking at something. So I think it will become increasingly important as, as the years go by. No, I've read this book. I really enjoyed it. But I wondered if I was in your target audience. The central character is a teenager. Did you have that age group in mind when you were writing? So I would like it to be not exclusively for teenagers and young adults. I was writing it for primarily an adult audience while hoping that, you know, perhaps some teenagers may be interested in reading it. So there's a few parts that get a little coarse. So it's probably not not ideal for like a 12 or a 13 year old, but anyone from beyond that age would hopefully get something out of it. Having the the younger characters, as in particular Mina as a central human character, as a 15 year old, it gave me a way to, among other things, to have someone with, you know, really keen eyes, someone whose heart was ready to be opened up to nature in what I hope is a, is a sort of a compelling narrative. So the, the short answer is, Hopefully anyone from a sort of early teenager up, but certainly plenty of adults would hopefully enjoy it. As I say, I very much enjoyed it. Now, just thinking about some of the themes for the book, I mean, one of the themes in your book, unsurprisingly, like you say, is awareness of the degradation of the natural world. You've got the plight of hedgehogs, the felling of ancient woodlands, the use of pesticides, for example. But there are some other themes that I thought perhaps we could mention as well. Now, traditions is a reoccurring feature in this book. You talk about Bengali traditions, local Thornley, which is the the, the little town in, in the book. You talked about the traditions from there and wider traditions like wassailing. How is rediscovering traditions, do you think, part of our eco-future? It's, a, it's an excellent question. Much has perhaps been forgotten. We've made some great strides recently, I think, the, you know, the world generally in our awareness of ecological problems and increasing number of sort of positive initiatives to change. But there's also plenty of really important things that have been going on throughout the history of humans, including through the Industrial Revolution, gave a sort of intimate contact with, with nature that perhaps was lost perhaps is still lost in some cases so yes it's it's not all about sort of having to invent things from scratch there's, there's plenty of really important ways in which people were connecting with nature and people are still connecting with nature where they hold on to to old traditions now not all old traditions are great there's some pretty horrible things we did to wildlife as well in centuries gone but yeah there's plenty of plenty of inspiration to draw from if if one does take an interest in, in you know in in what we've done before in in centuries gone so something else I noticed that, that the book is quite scathing about the current education system and Mina being a teenager, of course, is at school. And so we hear a bit about this. Do you think that schools are contributing to the environmental problems that we're facing? I think schools actually do a, a lot of really good stuff for education. I actually worry that pupils go home inspired to do things and the teachers aren't necessarily putting that into action in their own lives. But you rightly picked up a, a criticism of the educational system and, it, and it's, it's a broader one. I, I don't personally like the way that education seems to be increasingly about getting a grade in an exam and you hear about all the sort of extra tuition that parents pay for to ensure that their children can get the grade in that exam because that's what they're meant to do and that instrumentalized learning is something that I've increasingly become wary and and, and skeptical of and for me there's much more possibility for engaging students if they're you know if they're learning for learning's sake so one of the axes I was grinding probably (laughs) 
one of the things about ecofiction, like you say, is sort of trying to see the world in a different way and perhaps perceiving education in a different way is is one of the themes that you have, have picked up there. Now, music is something else that features heavily in this book. And I just wondered why you thought that that was important. Do you think that music has got any part to play in a shift towards more sustainable attitudes? Certainly. It's probably underrated as a as a medium of helping foster change in this. And actually, there probably is a, a slight dearth of really good ecological music, music with really good ecological messages. It just came sort of naturally to some of the characters based on my own experience. Certainly when I was the age that Mina was, I was falling in love with music. This whole story is not everything is necessarily ecologically angled. It just sort of came naturally to, to the characters, I think, without any sort of predetermination to, <laughs> to make sure. I covered it. It's the type of thing a 15-year-old would be doing is listening to music late at night, I think. I'm sure you're right. Um, I couldn't help but notice that the imaginary but much talked about Hopland Chase Community Woodland and perhaps see the parallels between that and the Watling Chase Community Woodland that people around St. Thomas got really quite excited about about, uh, about 20 years ago, but which really never came to anything. Was that where the idea came from? And I just wondered if there was any other local features which had provided inspiration for your book. That definitely was, yeah, I mean, you've, yeah, you, you've got me there <laughs> on that particular example. Yeah, so more, I think, I, you know, I don't specify exactly where Thornley is in the book, but from the ecology of the place, from the from the natural history of the place, it, it's got to be somewhere in the south or the east of England. So, yeah, the local inspiration for me in terms of the nature that Mina's and, and other characters are encountering. But yeah, you, yes, you've got me on the Hopland Chase community woodlands. But I, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it just seemed to fit so perfectly into. <laughs> Well, it's good that it's provided some use then. (laughs) So in the book, you've created so many really lovely and really quite detailed characters. Do you think that we'll be seeing more of Mina and the inhabitants of Thorny Wood, perhaps in future books? Yes, it requires a huge amount of mental work to imagine them growing up. The parents and and the teachers can probably stay fairly similar, but Mina, she's just turning 15, she's just about to turn 16. Who knows what the next few years will, will, you know, have in store for her. So I would love, to, you know, in the in the way that Sue Townsend, doesn't it, the author of Adrian Mole, returns to pick up Adrian Mole's story again in adult life. I, I, I certainly would love to do it, but I wouldn't underestimate the nature of the mental challenge to map it all out. Indeed, I'm sure that writing is really very hard work, not something I'm tempted to try. Now, you're giving all the royalties from this book to the World Land Trust. As you said, you just described how hard work it was to write the book. So that feels very generous. Why did you decide to support this charity? Simply put, they, they do they do really great work. They work with local people across the world to help increase the percentage of land that's got some kind of protected status bringing land into nature reserves as i said working with you know people in the locality which actually is is really really important if we're going to get close to the goal that you might hear some groups talking about of having half of the earth brought under some kind of protected status that nature needs half uh, movement or the, the half earth movement as it's alternatively called so they you know they're doing work to directly help get us towards that 50 percent goal brilliant well joe i can imagine that lots of people would enjoy your book thank you very much indeed for telling us all about it Thank you. Thanks very much. 
I was talking there to local author Joe Gray, whose book The Gardens of Greenspring Road is written under the pen name Dewey Dabber and is published by Dixie Books. It's available online or it can be ordered from both local bookshops, Books on the Hill and Waterstones. And it is good to know that if you buy The Gardens of Greenspring's Wood, as Joe explained, you are helping a brilliant charity. I do think it would make a rather lovely gift too. Now, Books on the Hill, down on Hollywell Hill in St Albans Town Centre, recommended a couple of excellent books in the eco-fiction genre when I got in touch, both of which they say they have in stock. The first is Overstory by Richard Powers. Now, it was awarded the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2019, and none other than Barack Obama said about it, it changed how I thought about the earth and our place on it. Oh, that's a rather fantastic recommendation, isn't it? It says it's a wondrous, exhilarating novel about nine strangers brought together by an unfolding natural catastrophe, each summoned in different ways by the natural world, who are brought together in a last stand to save it from catastrophe. Now, listener Christopher agrees and Linda says that whilst she ultimately loved Overstory and would reread it now she warns that it did take a while to get into it so do persevere and thank you for Christopher and Linda for your comments on that. Now Books on the Hill's second eco-fiction recommendation is by one of my favourite authors Barbara Kingsolver and the book's called Prodigal Summer. Prodigal Summer weaves together three stories of human love within a larger tapestry of lives inhabiting the forested mountains and struggling small farms of southern Appalachia and over the course of one humid summer these characters find their connections to one another and to the flora and fauna with whom they share a place. You can always rely on Barbara Kingsolver for a thought-provoking read and this is no exception and as I say you'll find that in Books on the Hill. Now, looking at more inspiring eco-reads, in the more general sense of the word, rather than just eco-fiction, thank you to all of you for your suggestions. Now, Lee has got three recommendations. His first is Rewild Yourself, 23 Ways to Make Nature More Visible, and it's by Simon Barnes. Now, Lee says that it's a witty and eye-opening account which highlights a number of ways to help bring nature back into your heart. He says that even if you can't relate to all of the 20-odd suggestions, there's going to be a good handful of ideas that will leave you itching to explore the wild word outside and according to Barnes the wilder you are the more amazing your life is and Caroline agrees with you too she would certainly recommend rewild yourself Lee's second suggestion is Under the Stars by Matt Graw. Now, he says that's an inspirational and intelligently written book which focuses on walking by the light of the night sky to help dictate adventures. Now, Josie joins Lee in his final recommendation. It's called No One is Too Small to Make Make a Difference and it's by, of course, Greta Thunberg. And it's a collection of her speeches from various climate rallies across the globe. Now, Lee says that as a father to his own little eco-warrior, this book is inspirational on another level. He says he fully appreciates that uh, Greta is something of a polarising figure, but there's no disputing the vision behind her journey and the passion behind her words. Now, Lee says that uninterrupted, you can probably get through the book in an hour, but that if it doesn't leave you with a burning desire to make the world a better place, then there's something seriously wrong with you. Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? 
English Pastoral by James Rebank is another popular eco-read. That gets the thumbs up from Isabel. And Danielle recommends The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wollenben, which she says has changed her forever. Um, And Waterstones agrees, saying, drawing on cutting-edge research, Wollenben sets out an argument for the forest being a social network and trees possessing similar qualities to the human family in a jaw-dropping, thoroughly entertaining work that will change the way you view all things arboreal. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And Nicola points out that adults aren't the only people to appreciate an inspirational eco-read. She says... Honestly, the kids' books have had a punching impact on me. The Lorax and Duffy's Lucky Escape are probably ones that hit home fast and hard. She's got a good point there, hasn't she? Start young and actually the effect can be bigger. So thank you for sharing your recommendations and I do hope that you'll find something there to inspire you to read one of those books for yourself or perhaps to give it as a lovely gift. Now, if you've got any more recommendations for inspirational books on an environmental theme, then I'd love to hear them. You can drop me a line on amanda at radioverilum.com or message via the Environment Matters Facebook page. You'll also find me on Twitter at rv underscore environment. Now, next week, I'm going to be talking to Mark Jackson Hancock, book expert at St Francis Hospice and Sarah Coles, their Director of Sustainability, to find out about their pre-loved book subscription and their other great sustainable gift ideas that are great for the planet and support the essential work that the hospice does. A quick heads up, if you're anything like me, you could find presents for some of these difficult to buy for people right there. So that's going to be at the same time next week. Until then, thank you for listening.